Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guests on the program include Melissa Easy, returning to the program. She's Vice President and General Manager of Clinical Technologies at IQVIA. She brings with her Vanita Navadgi. Senior Director of the Digital Patient Suite, also at IQVIA. They join me on today's show to discuss the advantages of optimizing consent workflows through automation, or what gets called e-consent processes. Together, we explore the metrics defining the effectiveness of e-consent as a use case both for patients and healthcare providers, eludicating the role of AI in shaping the broader landscape of clinical trials. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Vanita and Melissa, thanks so much for being with us on the program today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. I am honored to be asked back. Thank you so much. Absolutely. That's right. Melissa's a returning guest, and we always love having returning guests back on the show. Uh, we're actually here to talk about use cases in two specific areas of healthcare with our guests. We're uh, here, as uh, as I was saying a moment ago, with Vanita Navadgi, uh, Senior Director of Digital Patient Suite at IQVIA. We're going to start with Vanita uh, in a use case in e-consent. Vanita, before we get into the details here, uh, I know the name might be a little self-explanatory, or at least give our listeners kind of a an idea of where this is going, but can you give us a concrete definition uh, definition of like electronic-based consent and uh, tell us a bit about why e-consent is becoming so important in healthcare workflows? So let me explain e-consent by drawing a parallel with a recent personal experience that I was involved in. So uh, I bought a new house in July and before I met with my mortgage lawyer and signed Congratulations, by work. the way. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to get to signing the reams of paperwork. But before I did that, um, I had walked through my house a couple of times. I had professional home inspections done and was well aware of any functional or aesthetic gaps that existed. So I had a lot of fairly good clarity in terms of what I was getting into. Now, if I were a patient thinking of enrolling into a clinical trial, I would need a lot more clarity. One, because it uh, impacts my health and sometimes my life. And I need to understand in advance uh, what the treatment plan would be, what would be the benefits, what would be the care processes that would be followed, what is the frequency of visits, um, the biosample submission schedule that I would have to kind of adhere to, or um, any investigational interventions that I would be involved in. And most importantly, what is the overall risk that would be associated with the treatment? So um, now this is critical, not just because I'm the patient and uh, from, from an IQVIA perspective, but also it, it's a very important process across the clinical trial, which is carefully regulated. And this process is mandated by regulatory bodies and ethics committees across the globe. Now, traditionally, this process uh, happens where all this explanation is done by the physician or the principal investigator and the clinical staff verbally uh, to the patient and then physical vetting signatures are required on the paper documentation. Uh, what an e-consent solution does, and sorry for the long-winded approach. No, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> They've. Uh, I assure you our audience has been through longer winding roads of explanations. You're just fine. Go ahead. 
what an e-consent solution does is basically it presents a more sophisticated digital option where the consent forms are presented to the patient in a more systematic manner on a page-by-page -page or a section-by-section -section basis. The patient's comprehension levels are tracked and the patient can progress to the next page only after they have confirmed that they've understood the previous page. Uh, now, this interactive format is very good, but it can be further augmented or enriched with uh, multimedia tools where the content can be embedded with audio narrations or videos to explain the procedures in detail or yeah. um, even hyperlinked glossary terms to simplify complex medical terms. And uh, as the patients progress uh, through each section, they have the capability to flag areas where they need more clarity, where they have questions or need some doubts to be cleared. And this really helps our clinical site staff because now, rather than spending a lot of time in explaining the protocol to the patient, they can spend their time more efficiently in resolving any residual doubts the patients mm. may have and giving them that com comfort and confidence that they need. Now, why is this process important? Well, if you think about it, this is the first formal introduction the patient has to the clinical trial. So it's very important that we make this process easy and as frictionless as possible. Um, especially now, you know, in the post-pandemic world, you know, there has been widespread adoption of digital technologies. Everybody is used to using digital mediums and applications and uh, this techno technology has proliferated to you know the remotest of regions and across all age groups all demographics so we expect these experiences to be seamless simple and by presenting this information in a visually appealing format uh, we believe it definitely improves the patient's comprehension and another additional benefit that the e-consent tool brings to the table is the ability for patients to review the doc the documentation, the forms from uh, the convenience of their homes in at their own pace, at their own time. And this definitely impacts the patient's confidence towards the trial. This directly translates to better patient recruitment levels mm -hmm. and um, even the ability that they stay on and or they're retained through the duration of the trial. And uh, I think all this aligns with our goals on uh, patient satisfaction and uh, patient centricity. Yes, it's, it seems like it, this is uh, this can be a huge, as much friction as you might be adding to the process, this is a way to really connect with patients and really make them feel like no, you know, no punches are being pulled. No, there's not going to be any surprises in the process. Uh, you mentioned clinical trials before for the application for this and, and, and just staying in the specifics of that use case. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering where this might occur in the clinical trials process and what, you know, in-person preparation uh, uh, that there might be to notify the patient, hey, we're going to do things a, a, a little differently this round. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, this is the first I had heard of a, a, any consent form. I'm sure they'll, they'll also need to be introduced to the idea. Um, and that's a that's a huge moment, uh, at least in the entire workflow of of setting expectations and making sure that, you know, they know uh, how seriously they need to take this process in this document. Just trying to get an idea of, especially in the clinical trials example what in-person preparation before they get the e-consent form that there might be just for like kind of setting the table for the patient about the importance of the form and how it's meant to make sure they're fully aware of the uh, of them knowing what they're getting into with the clinical trial 
So uh, there are various different ways in which a patient could, um, you know, be introduced to a clinical mm-hmm. trial. Either they find out about it online, or they are informed about the clinical trial by um, their their doctor, their physician, the clinical staff. But uh, once they are told about the trial, and if they are thinking about enrolling into the trial, this is the first step. They need to understand okay. the nuances of the clinical trial, so they are presented with the form because nothing happens until they sign on to gotcha. the consent forms. It's the very first step that they introduce to. And Melissa, if you have anything more to add to this, please feel free to do so. Sure, sure. I'll uh, I'll turn to M- Melissa, but just kind of the end end of like the end determination there is like this is actually the very, very first step and and they're already in the online process. Melissa, if you want to chime in there just with uh, the impact that that has on on customer experiences or patient experiences, I should say, forgive me. Yeah, no problem at all. So so for me, is making a, a clinical trial can be quite scary. And some of the information that has to be covered in an electronic consent can 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 maybe potentially make people worry because you need to be very clear in regards to what could possibly be an outcome from being in the clinical trial. And so having something like an e-consent tool rather than a paper tool really helps that education. Sort of you can have videos, hyperlinks, you know, all sorts of ways to really make it patient feel really comfortable that they are making the right decision for them in participating in the clinical trial. Absolutely. And, and Vanita, uh, just uh, or or uh, to, this question can go to you both uh, for, for whoever's looking at least at the results of this. Do we have a clear idea of a before and after so far? I, I, I take it e-consent forms are relatively new, but do we have an idea of before and after in terms of the impact on, uh, on, on patient experiences, on patient satisfaction, on them feeling educated in the process versus before we had e-consent forms? Well, we definitely have data that we have been tracking to um, see the validity and the effect of e-consent tools. And this is not just limited to IQVIA, but across the industry. What we have seen is that typically it takes, we need to recruit, enroll 25% fewer patients to reach the recruitment level goals for a particular trial. So uh, if we are trying to recruit 100 patients earlier, we would need, you know, maybe let's say the enrollment levels are 200. Now we can probably bring them down to 150 to reach reach the same goals. So uh, definitely it impacts um, the, the, the education definitely impacts and helps the helps reach the recruitment goals faster. Absolutely, absolutely, and those are very, very promising results uh, it, to to be tracking uh, in the process. Uh, Melissa, anything to add there? Well, more that why if you if you then take it rather than just from a a, a person and a human participating in a clinical trial, and you flip it to the business side, running clinical trials are really, really expensive, and so it's really important that patients do understand what they're agreeing to, so that they don't drop out because that then um, not only slows down the trial, which means it's going to take longer for a product to make it to to the broader market, but it also means it's going to cost the company running the trial a lot more money because they have to have a lot more patients in there. So anything we can do, because I, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of, you know, getting the safe products to the people who need them in the market as quickly as possible, just something simple as the electronic consent can, mm-hmm. can really help there. 
Absolutely. Uh, I'm I'm curious as to this. Uh, I know we have this in the in the clinical trials process. Um, you know, and, and I know IQVIA has uh, you know a, a good amount of operations on both sides of that healthcare life sciences line, while being predominantly life sciences. Uh, all at the same time, I, I I imagine, especially for you know the greater healthcare workflows involved, that e-consent uh, has a lot of different applications across hospitals and, and etc. Just how are you? How are you? Do you imagine that healthcare leaders might be interested in in leveraging data tools like e-consent to make other workflows easier? Oh, it, it is 100% top of mind for many people because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you actually start to think in healthcare at the moment, I actually think it's getting harder than ever before to make the right decisions because purely because of the volume and variety of data that we are now capturing is so tremendous that people do risk getting less intelligence from the data. It's a little ironic, but because people can't make the right decisions. So when you think about all of the data that we are actually generating in a clinical trial today or even in healthcare, it it if it just as a as individual human, it's overwhelming to make conclusions. Mm. So if if so despite the availability, it's it's actually harder to make a meaningful decision. And so this is where I think um like modern technology helps us. So we talk about sort of augmented or connected intelligence at IQVIA and how we really use that to try and help identify and help individuals work out what the next best action might be. So so one one thing I read from a Tufts report, um, and I can certainly provide the link so you can you can share this. I think it was Absolutely. done in, in 21, uh, 2021. And it, they were sort of talking about, I believe, in a phase three study, there was about 3.6 million data points being captured per study, which was over three times more than it had been 10 years prior. And so, so I mean, no one can can understand 3.6 million data points. So it is it is very large. And so, so that's why we think about tying data together. And so when I think about the patient, like being what we're talking about today, that like exploring all the information about the patient, you can drive some incredible insights around disease detection. When you start thinking about labs, claims, EMR data, you know, just the different journeys a patient takes in healthcare or in in clinical trials. So so when you, you understand that data and you develop algorithms, you know, you can then identify patients at risk of developing a disease. So they haven't even done it yet. You can help them right. sort of start to avoid that. You know, it might help with underdiagnosis or even underreported diseases, you know, with predictive analytics. So it's 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 pretty exciting because clearly that can also feed into um to clinical trials and not just general healthcare. Um, but you it it is now, I think, at a point where it's where Looking at how we take all this raw data and and sort of help with sort of actionable uh, outcomes. Vanita, anything to add there? Yeah, so I I mean it's definitely the whole process, the the ability to you know take a patient before they get recruited into a clinical trial through the process of the cre- uh, clinical trial into the real world, stitching that journey together is um, definitely catching up and bringing in a lot of value. This is something that our clients are asking for and um, uh, ensuring that the patient is identified and followed through through this journey to track real health outcomes is something that is gathering a lot of uh, steam lately. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I know on the data side, in, in technology, a popular term we like to use is black box problems. And even where, you know, this leaves data and gets down to, you know, everyday folks like my mom, um, you know, just understanding what's what's going into their news media feeds and, and, and things like that. I think this has huge potentials uh, in healthcare to really work out black box problems, uh, you know, really get patients to understand what the information flows are like and how that uh, and, and, and what information flows are necessary, you know, despite their privacy concerns in order to get them the the healthcare outcomes that they're looking for. Uh, uh, Melissa, it, the last time we had you on uh, was a little bit earlier this year as of the recording of today's show is in July of 2023. But that unfortunately is an eternity in terms of AI adoption trends. I'm curious, just before we leave today's show, I know we only have a limited amount of time, but what use cases are, are you seeing uh, in the time since that are changing the ways uh, that we look at AI's impact in the healthcare space. It, it, continue, it definitely continues to evolve and it has been a lifetime, which is kind of terrifying. Um, yeah. But we continue to work with regulatory authorities to make sure that, because when we're talking about clinical trials, we have to be very careful that anything, anytime we use new algorithms or certain ways of doing things that, that the authorities are going to accept that data. So it's kind of like, in a way, proving that any algorithms or AI that we now sort of insert into a clinical trial, it would have been the same outcome had a human or how we had historically done it. So there's been a lot of work. Interesting. And a lot of work continuing around patients, making sure that, yes, we want to be able to really engage and personalize like an, a clinical trial experience, but, but we have to do it with caution and make sure that clearly, absolutely no recommendation is going to them, um, you know, about their, their health or their medicine or anything with, without um, with major caution. So again, keeping humans in the loop um, has been a very common theme. But we're definitely seeing a number of use cases sort of panning out, even as we're seeing different large language models are sort of doing releases and looking at things themselves differently, like how mm -hmm. it's starting to help us solve some of the problems that, that we were having in trying to work out how to apply. So so I, I just think this is going to continually evolve. Um, you know, and so so you are absolutely right. But but we just are continuing to look into this. We've been creating a number of specialists where this now is their roles, really looking at how this can improve um, experiences in clinical trials and, and the quality, because clearly for us, it is the quality that is super important because it's about decrease, decreasing risks for patients. Uh, I absolutely attest to what Melissa says. Any AI-generated outcomes will have to be judiciously supported with, um, you know, the adequate quality controls and with human intervention specialists, basically, that review anything that is produced mm -hmm. by these AI tools. And there are a lot of uh, use cases that actually come into mind when we look at uh, using these tools and data technologies. And um, even within the e-consent space, right, if you look at, you know, the areas where we are generating multimedia-rich content, we can leverage this in uh, we can leverage large language models and AI technologies mm. in creating um, these consent forms using pre-existing templates, therapeutic documentation, and the protocol design. Of course, again, goes needs to go through multiple levels of quality control to ensure that uh, we're careful about what we're producing. But I would like to focus on the latter part where these documents are then translated into uh, multimedia rich content 
using these tools. So they are, and we're already starting to use those. We're using AI-powered text-to-speech converters for audio narration, and um, there are also specialized AI tools for converting text into, you know, trial-related training videos. Uh, the yeah. other advantages these tools bring onto the table is the ability to translate this very quickly into multiple languages because we, you know, have implementation of e-consent at various clinical sites across the globe. And this is a huge time-consuming kind of activity. So if you are able to expedite that using these AI technologies, a lot of benefit that we can bring to the table. The other area is we can use these to identify and flag any legal or ethical issues in um, the document design. So, you know, basically work, uh, stay aligned to our uh, ethics committees and regulatory authorities and actually identifying any ethical issues within the documentation preemptively. So that's a significant use case while generating this um, rich content for um, uh, for the e-consent uh, forms. Yeah. From a patient safety and a patient centricity perspective, again, a lot of benefits, a lot of use cases that can be identified. We're already using, working with qualified trust service uh, providers that use AI-powered image and voice recognition technologies to identify and authenticate patients. That's something that is already happening specifically in the EU region. And then we, we, we you know, Melissa uh, touched upon precision medicine and personalized experiences for patients, right? So mm. can we use uh, these data technologies, these AI tools to personalize our consent-related content um, right. depending on the patient's comprehension levels, you know, depending on uh, what, yeah. what, what is their age? Um, even for a pediatric trial, right? If you're looking at pediatric yeah. patients, we could customize the information at different grade levels depending on what yep. is or their age or their education levels. Or when we are um, recruiting for onco oncology trials, right? Yeah. Uh, and we need to educate the patient about this really complex trial. How can we, and we're, we're looking at recruiting patients across different ages, different ethnicities, different language demographics. How can we basically customize the education so that it is relatable to them? They understand yes. it. And um, it is easy to, for them to comprehend. And this is not generic information. It is customized on a patient by patient basis. If we could do that, that is, there's a lot of um, uh, value these technologies can bring to the table. And of course, again, I do want to underline this, that it will all have to be approved by our um, yeah. ethics committees and regulatory boards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lots of oversight going into these tools. Uh, all, all that said, a, a lot of what uh, you both were just saying reminds me of conversations I have in in, in circles of uh, e-commerce and marketing in terms of knowing that generative AI tools will be able to translate language and, you know, make websites, you know, perfectly usable to, you know, folks in, in from to all over the world, no matter what language they speak, uh, they can localize content 
uh, you know, content right down to the specific area where someone lives. And mm-hmm. it's very, very interesting to see these tools uh, get put in, get put to use in in healthcare contexts in order to make sure that folks, you know, completely understand what they're getting on board with uh, with a medical procedure, be that surgery or clinical trials. I'm also very, very excited to see what comes out of kind of doing that A/B testing, uh, for lack of a uh, a better way to describe it, from what Melissa was talking about of what does a com- uh, like an, uh, a model influenced uh, workflow look like, and what are the, what are the outcomes versus only humans? And I think mm-hmm. juxt- juxtaposing those back to back, especially in healthcare, is going to be very revelatory for what uh, what is the true nature and the true benefits of these tools. We're just about out of time. I don't want to take you guys uh, too much farther past the bottom of the hour. Uh, Melissa and Vanita, thank you so much for being with us on today's show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Before closing today's show, a few highlights of the conversation that I think executives should keep in mind as they walk out into the world trying to improve their organization's position in this volatile landscape, especially for AI adoption. I think both speakers really analyzed in depth the critical role of electronic consent in healthcare workflows with the recognition, the positive impact of patient-centered e-consent on clinical trial efficiency and comprehension is very well established by both the research side and practice by this point. Both speakers also acknowledged the challenges and benefits associated with e-consent forms in clinical trials. They highlighted the significance of caution and quality control in utilizing AI for healthcare, patient engagement, and clinical trials, and they concluded with the potential of AI in expediting multimedia content creation for informed consent, including language localization in healthcare contexts. For more on the model development necessary to really build out a lot of the newer e-consent and generative AI touching use cases in healthcare, don't forget to check out our episode from last year featuring Eric Duhame, CEO of Centaur Labs. That episode is from August 31st, 2023 on the AI in Business podcast and is titled Overcoming Healthcare Challenges with Generative AI and Deep Learning with Eric Duhame of Centaur Labs. Really does a great job covering the basics in terms of the challenges and setting forth a framework for healthcare leaders to understand how they're really going to be able to tackle these use cases from the standpoint of being able to train these technologies with real expert perspective from healthcare providers and professionals. On behalf of Daniel Fagella, our CEO and head of research, as well as the rest of the team here at Emerge Technology Research, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business podcast.